0: Hi there, my name is Jessica Stone, and you're listening to Refugees Stories Podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different. It's an interview with my friend, Andreas, who wrote his master's thesis about livelihood skills for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. He spent a lot of time researching and reading on this topic, and so I thought he was the best person to turn to, to learn more about the subject. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: My name is Andreas Olander and um, I have been doing a project here with Salam uh, since the past six months I got this idea while I was working for an NGO here and I visited many families and many households uh, of uh, predominantly Syrian refugee families Then um, and The majority of them had a um, a problem with their income to to gain a sustainable income. And when we tried to figure out the reason for this, it was because they could either not find a job, or it was because they um, the jobs that were available to them they could not uh, meet up to the requirements, or had physical limitations to doing, for example, manual labor. Um, So that's when I got the idea of trying to investigate ways to um, uh, skills or livelihood skills um, which could enhance these families' self-reliance. Uh, young Syrian males, as uh, or as we say, young refugee males uh, in Lebanon and in the world in general um, are subjected very much by the media right now, and they are slowly and have been very stigmatized uh, for... Uh, for quite a number of years now. And I think that it is also important to depict them as not these refugee males that we hear about in the media, but also as people who are trying to um, to live and to provide for their families like any other uh, human being would want to do. Syrian refugees are very uh, marginalized and they suffer a lot from uh, legal barriers uh, from the Lebanese government which um, unfortunately limits their access to media or uh, people in general or like there is no real accessibility uh, uh, on both parts to to hear or be heard. There is a um, uh, slight frustration among many of the refugees uh, with with NGO uh, workers and NGOs that they feel that they're not they're being treated more as a number, often in personal uh, way, and the approach uh, that which they which they perceive. Starting from the Syrian crisis, uh, they uh, the Lebanese the government uh, closed the open border policy, which previously enabled a lot of migratory uh, migratory work uh, between the countries. Then and there was a historically a migratory pattern where Syrians would come and do menial labor in Lebanon and then come back to Syria. Um, and live after earn, earn money then whereas now there has uh, to, to obtain legal residency then to be able to, 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 to work and live here they need to pay uh, um, <clears throat> a, a yearly sum um, and as a migrant worker that might be seen as an in- investment but as a refugee uh, you might have to leave everything behind which kind of forces you to live uh, or reside illegally in the country and uh, the introduction of the sponsorship program, as they call it, uh, the kafala, where uh, to be able to obtain a work permit uh, as a Syrian and legal residency would be to have a a Lebanese sponsor and employer who sponsors you and is responsible for you. And if you then take this into the equation of number of uh, Syrians in working age in Lebanon currently and the number of Lebanese who might actually be willing to uh, give you a sponsorship and then be legally responsible for you, it is um, quite unfeasible. The difference, I would say, in Lebanon is that there is uh, a very severe lack of legal rights uh, for refugees, um, whereof many countries in Europe have signed certain conventions uh, that actually gives refugees rights whereof Lebanon has not. Uh, and there are certain uh, legislations that supports um, directly and indirectly uh, exploitation and abuse of refugees, uh, which makes their situation very uh, precarious. Palestinian refugees, uh, they have a legal status as refugees, and they're the only uh, the only ones who can have a legal uh, refugee status in Lebanon, which entitles them to. Uh, the refugee rights based on the 1951 convention and entitles them to fields of labor more so than their Syrian counterparts. That is the big legal uh, difference. But then again, um, legalities only have a certain effect um, in an informal uh, labor market such as Lebanon. I doubt that there is a huge difference uh, in... In labor fields, and especially if you look back, maybe at like the, the, the uh, in the nineteen seventies when uh, when the Palestinians um, were active as refugees and they had to be accommodated into Lebanon, uh, they were in the exact same fields uh, as the Syrian migrant workers at that time. And this is not uh, the first time that this theme has um, has come. Uh, come up to the surface in Lebanon as migrant workers have historically, Syrian migrant workers historically have been pushed out um, out of Lebanon for security reasons, for safety, political wars, uh, civil wars and whatnot. But the biggest difference is that they've always had a a place to come home to. They're not... Officially recognized as refugees in the country and that is why they're not allowed to uh, to build any camps. Hence, uh, they they name them settlements Um, And I believe that these uh, these regulations uh, They serve to solidify the notion and a message uh, to refugees as well as uh, as the world that they are not Uh, a hosting nation for refugees, but they are a temporary uh, refuge um, where people ended up. I believe that everyone that I talked to, except for one, they all agreed that they were looking for more productive jobs and they wanted to escape the uh, manual labor in general because it is not sustainable uh, in terms of income, in terms of uh, uh, bodily stress, for example mm. stress, st- stress on the body and the mind um, and because of uh, exploitation and discrimination which frequently occurs according to them uh, in the uh, uh, in the labor fields um, and I had several, um, several of my participants, uh, they had tertiary education um which they unfortunately could not utilize um because they did not have uh, a a legal permit or a, a work uh, work permit or a Lebanese sponsor so they were limited to working um um in the fields as farmers or um or in construction or Making cement or, or or these similar manual and menial labor tasks instead of u- utilizing a tertiary education and a lot of frustration uh, is coming out of that as well. I think one of the things that I did not expect, uh, which is that uh, I think an idea that Westerners who come to uh, to Middle Eastern countries were uh, the the sense of community and a sense of familiarity is, uh, what do you say, a bit of romanticized uh, in a way. Um, But from what I, from what I heard from many of the participants were that uh, their idea of community support and having each other's backs and so on, suffered greatly uh, due to the strain on their livelihoods and their strain on, on their lives in general and especially regarding uh, livelihood skills and labor. Um, due to the inflation of manual labor skills, uh, there is high competition uh, between Syrian refugees, uh, which means that people will not, um, might not include others that are in the community and their sense of community, immediate community, which you would support and help and educate. It goes no further than the immediate family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something that I found unexpected really um, and made me rethink my picture of the uh, especially the Arab community uh, and sense of familiarity. Okay. I would say that the the, the, the motivations uh, for keeping the sense of community support to your immediate family is only based on necessity. It is based on that they... Decide to not invite uh, their colleague or their friend to do uh, work with them because they need money for food, or they need money to pay rent, or they need clothes for their baby, or whatnot. That is what what creates this this need uh, and this motivation. I would say that sadness and regret was not uh, was not a common theme. It was not. It was more a sense of dejection. Uh, and I, I I don't want to say hopelessness because that, w- that was not the case. It was more a sense of trying again and again, and then constantly you you you're you're facing uh, uh, what do you call this defeat. I did have many uh, many uh, quite a few uh, moments of hope, yeah. and they were predominantly you know I, I won't say that they were all linked to Syrian repatriation um And that was one of my, uh, while conducting my interviews, it was one of my, what I call as emotional triggers. uh, Whereas I had questions regarding uh, livelihood skills uh, in the repatriation, uh, potential repatriation. And the roles always followed by more descriptive uh, accounts and more vivid explanations and raised voice and sense of pride and hope uh, were frequent uh, throughout the interviews uh, when discussing repatriation. One of the participants um, had a very descriptive explanation of the effects of uh, livelihood skill training for uh, the for Syrian refugees. How it would create like an economic cycle, which would actually include the host community, the Syrian families themselves, and also um, a almost a synergy of the de- development. Um, to counter hostilities and to counter deprivation in the region itself. And this is something which I found very interesting because he was the only participant who actually decided to take his perception of his reality and his, uh, of his situation and to see it from more of a a broader perspective. Um, And he continued on by saying that Enabling Syrian refugees and giving them the support which they need will create a cycle that not only affects us as Syrians, but as Lebanese and as people, uh, people as as one, as a, as a unity. And if you take a Syrian refugee and turn this person from a victim into a productive member of a society, this turns into a positive cycle which affects... Um, people in a very broad and positive way. I would say that the development in refugee livelihood and refugee livelihood skills uh, the past six years have uh, have had an immense uh, development and progress in how to utilize sustainably money and and, and benefits and aid um, and they have constructed many innovative solutions and ideas uh, which would lead to, um, when you're talking about aid money or, uh, or do- donating money, you would talk about the equivalent of money that would support uh, a family for uh, one month, could then instead educate maybe um, five or six participants to gain their livelihoods and to gain uh, money, food and necessities of life for years ahead. And if you're talking about Lebanon in itself and the Syrian uh, the refugees that habit it, um, when you then are talking about donating money for livelihood skills, not only are you helping the Syrian refugees in Lebanon and you are helping them to not being dependent on non-sustainable aid, but you are also preemptively creating a more sustainable and durable solution for potential repatriation to Syria and Mm. rebuilding of Syria.
0: Thanks for listening to this special episode of Refugee Stories podcast. You were just listening to my friend Andreas talking about livelihood skills. If you'd like to support livelihood skills for Syrian refugees in Lebanon, consider donating to Salaam LADC, the NGO he mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Salaam LADC is an NGO in the Beqar Valley that works with Syrian refugees. You can find them online just by searching Salaam LADC. That's S-A-L-A-M-L-A-D-C. They have a Facebook page, website, Instagram, Twitter, the usual. As always, this episode was sponsored by Hindenburg Audio Suite, the fantastic audio editing program that was used in the making of this episode. Head to their website, Hindenburg.com, to find out more. Thanks go to Axeltree and Poddington Bear for the music, as well as Andreas for sharing his research and knowledge for the episode. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone, and you've been listening to Refugee Stories Podcast.